Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Death of Stalin. Moscow, 1953. After being in power for nearly 30 years, Soviet dictator Joseph Vissyaronovich Stalin takes ill and quickly dies. Now the members of the Council of Ministers scramble for power. It's satire time! Yay, satire! Oh, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Fickle mistress. This is a movie we really wanted to go see back in 2017 when it came out. Yeah, we had just seen In the Loop. Mm. That was a few years before, but still. Yeah, but we had seen that. I had been watching some Veep, and we were all in on Armando Iannici. And so we were like, yes. Like, oh, he's got a new movie that looks funny. We want to see it. And we just didn't. And it's about... Stalin and the Soviet Union. Dana, how much do you know about the Soviet Union and the power politics? I, I've learned a lot more recently. <laughs> um, in the last couple of years, I will say that when we were watching this, is like this is exactly how things would have played out had Trump died in office. Uh, a little bit. The chaos and just nobody knows what the fuck to do aspects would have been very much at play. Credit where credit's due, though. Stalin was far more of a Nixon than a than a Trump. Okay? No, no, no. It was just like the idiocracy that was surround that surrounded the organization at that time. It was just like, yeah, this is how this would have played out. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, this this movie is definitely a satire and definitely mm-hmm. fictionalized in order to represent a satire. Mm-hmm. It is not the actual history and. There's an argument either way, but we'll have to have that debate when we get to the history of it. Mm-hmm. As a movie, it's fun. It's a little it's a little dry. It is. It's not as instantly, oh holy shit, this is so good as in the loop. Mm-hmm. Or as some of the earlier work he's done, where it's so cutting, so on on point, witty, amazing. This one, it's he's telling such a big story in such a condensed way. Mm-hmm. And I think Missing some of those nuances, the real story of these power plays and power struggles, it's it's so big and so dense that I don't know that satire is necessarily the right way to do it. He does an admirable job of it, though, and it's very mm-hmm. fucking funny at the very least. Oh, it's hilarious. And it's filled with very funny people. The cast is outstanding. Yes, very Everybody's so. top notch. Everybody's doing great work. Mm-hmm. messing with each other i almost would be willing to side with some of the historians on this and part of this is just recently listening to like I- i've listened to more stuff that's not necessarily about soviet history but like stories from the soviet era mm-hmm. and how it's way dumber and way sillier than this movie would even paint it to be mm. because this movie plays at everybody's got a political perspective and there's you know a drive and a goal and it's like it it honestly was way more just a fucking nobody knows anything that's going on in all Mm -hmm. these different places and the soviet story is also one of like you've got 20 different you know territories and groups and ethnicities and there's all this other in-between soviet shit going on as well Mm -hmm. so the whole story is so complex that I don't know that boiling it down this way is the best satire. Okay. But as a movie, it's still pretty fun. And it does get at like 
the actual anxiety of the era mm-hmm. really well. Yes, very much so. All right. Well, the budget for this movie was $13 million. It's not shocking. It feels a little bit like a BBC television production. Yeah, that's not a considering the cast. That's a very low budget. They're clearly not doing a whole lot of sets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can tell by like the way the film was made. I mean, it's good. It's very telling of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really it, it nails the aesthetic of the Soviet era. It's just also doesn't feel like a full-on movie Mm. at times you're like i feel like i'm watching something that was on television now that's bad but it is a little cheaper it made 24 million six hundred and fifty thousand dollars that's really not bad for a movie like this no this was never gonna make a ton of money but i mean just like in the loop just like veep all of that stuff got so much notoriety because of the quality and it's the writing that's the quality obviously Yes, it's very well thought out. It moves really fast. It doesn't have a bunch of um it just it just doesn't it doesn't waste time. It doesn't. And that that's the number one thing with it. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I think there's satire that you could do, but again, if you're gonna do satire on the level of really playing up all of the different crap, even in just this era of the Soviet Union, you it can't be a movie. Mm-hmm. Probably needs to be a book. That's fair. Every single one of these dudes, their story is so dense. Mm-hmm. Like each one of these characters has almost entire books you could write on them individually of what happened. And like one thing I know from reading, um, there's this great book called October by a novelist named Chino Mieville, who went through the revolution and wrote it, wrote the history of it from a, like a bird's eye view as a novel almost. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's astonishing is how fucking fast everything happens. Like when the re- when the full on revolution starts in 1917, it happens in a matter of weeks. And so the Soviet Union really did like it would things could change at the drop of a dime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was this constantly shifting environment because nobody done this before. <laughs> Let's talk about our writing. Okay. And we start off with the fact that this is based on a graphic novel. Really? It's not based on some historical text. There is a graphic novel of this, written by two writers, Fabian Nuri and Thierry Robin. Nuri created a lot of stuff for French TV and movies and also wrote the original screenplay for this story. And then Thierry Robin, his biggest claim to fame was working as a layout artist for the busy world of Richard Scarry in the 1990s. Hmm. So then we have our writers. The lead is... Obviously, Armando Iannucci. Mm-hmm. Part of the Chris Morris comedy writing tree, he is one of the preeminent contemporary satirists, mm-hmm. along with Chris Morris, who are known for doing satire that bites so hard it leaves like teeth marks. Before this, he worked on The Day to Day, Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge. He is the mm-hmm. creator of the Alan Partridge character. Okay. The Armandi Uyanucci shows, I'm Alan Partridge, The Thick of It, In the Loop, Alan Partridge, The Movie, and Veep. And after this, he did The Personal History of David Copperfield and the television series Avenue 5. Oh, yeah. We then have David Schneider, who had a cameo arpon as the train engineer in 1995's Mission Impossible, but he was also part of the day-to-day crew. He helped write Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge in the day-to-day He hasn't written much after this. He gets a lot of cameos and I think works with these guys a lot. 
We have Ian Martin working on it. He co-wrote In the Loop, The Thick of It, and worked on Veep. And after this, worked on Avenue 5. And finally, we have a newer writer that hasn't really done a whole lot. This is his first big film. Mm -hmm. um, but he worked on some additional material for the movie. Okay. So it's very much a writer's room feel for <laughs> this movie, with Armando being the guy in charge. What do we think of the writing of this movie? Oh, it's fabulous. It does just enough exposition without without droning on or being like, oh, clearly they're trying to explain all of this. Like they just let the situation explain itself to us as opposed to like trying to purposely have a character ask a ton of questions for the exposition, uh, which I love. I feel like he does that in a lot of his works. Well, and and it's it's also just funny. It's just funny. Part of the satire, too, is the anxiety of not knowing what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of this story in particular. There are times, I mean, it's something he does, but, you know, I've seen some episodes of Veep or, you know, In the Loop where they do take a minute to do some exposition because we need to get it for the clarity of the story. Sure. But in but this one it only adds to all of the what the fuck is happening mood when you don't know the details of what's going on. Sure. That's the point. Yeah, but it also just saves so much time. So much of some movies is just the exposition that is just like, we don't need this. This doesn't add anything. Like sometimes it's really pretty and cool. I get that. But also, but like sometimes it's like, this is just, this is 20 minutes of fat you could cut from a film. And we don't have any of that here. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It As a movie, uh, as a story on its own, it does really well. Probably the only thing is that because you're moving so fast, sometimes the characters are too much. There are mm -hmm. probably some superfluous characters here. Yeah. I almost feel like, you know, it's fun that we pepper certain stuff in, but there's a few characters like, honestly, Stalin's children, I could do without. Like yes. they're fun and they're funny, mm -hmm. but it's honestly superfluous to the struggle between Khrushchev and Beria. And mm -hmm. the group of guys around them that actually have other authority to prop one or the other up. Yeah. Right? Like, that's all we need. It's just the ministers. So everybody who comes in from the outside, it starts to feel like you're piling on a little bit. That, mm -hmm. That's the only part to me that I'm just like, we're, we're moving so fast, you can't have that many figures coming in from every side. Because eventually, it's just too much to keep track of. And there are certain subplots that I'm like... I could have done without this guy and a little bit more of our main characters. Oh, yeah. But the pace, the pace is so fun, not just because it moves quick, because it's nice to watch a short movie, mm -hmm. but also because it moves so quick that you feel like you're running around with them, just like Khrushchev trying to get his pajamas on. <laughs> and that's the feeling the whole time you're watching mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Quarit, the room is only 75% conscious. Are you wearing pajamas? Yes, so... Why? Because I act, Labrenti, decisively and with great speed. I said you'd be tested, and right now you're being tested by a shouting man wearing pajamas. Have you got a nappy under those too? Too late for him. <laughs> you're like, wait, this is okay. Now this is happening. They're they're gonna kill him, or are they gonna? What is happening? <laughs> it's a constant farce, and it's solely just political maneuvering for the farce. Mm -hmm. I also I can't get over the writing for Molotov's character, which. The history that we'll get into, like, Molotov was a diehard. Molotov was, like, part of the original revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, he was a full-on sided up with Lenin, but kept his power. And, like, 
everything they gave Michael Palin to do. Again, a lot of it is Michael Palin. Oh, sure. But just the absolute exquisite writing of this man who is so devoted to the party that he will refuse to accept his own wife back Mm -hmm. (laughs) in any meaningful way. Just way too devoted to the cause. Ian Uchi was very clear. This was not intended to be a real-to-life story. Quote, I'm not saying it's a documentary. It is a fiction, but it's a fiction inspired by the truth of what it must have felt like at the time. My Mm -hmm. aim is for the audience to feel the sort of low-level anxiety that people must have when they just went about their daily lives at the time. Unquote. Mm. Um, He specifically chose to tone down real-life absurdity to make things more believable. So yes, what actually happened is so much weirder (laughs) than what we see in this movie. Like... And I think that's part of part of the issue is when you do start to learn about Soviet history, you realize it's really not such a satire as it is an absurdist comedy. Mm-hmm. You start to find out. So then this guy did this thing and you're like, why? What? Like there are some bad people, but then there were just weird people. Mm-hmm. And like there's also the whole Russian culture and how that factors into it. Like, it, there's just so much about it that's so bizarre that a, a just pointed barbed political satire doesn't necessarily capture the whole scope of what a weird time that was in that country. Uh, Malenkov's no comma problem bit that we hear in the film, which is mm-hmm. so good. No problem. Technically, yes, but practically. When I said no problem, what I meant was no problem. Ignore me. Is very possibly a nod to the famous Russian winged word, which has opposite meanings depending on where the punctuation or intonation is placed. So, the phrase pardon impossible to be executed could also mean pardon impossible to be executed. <laughs> okay. Just depends on how you say the word. <laughs> Zhukov's kiss of Khrushchev on the lips is a reference to a famous kiss between Brezhnev and Eric Honecker in 1979. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when Khrushchev shouts to Beria, I will bury you in history. This is very similar to Khrushchev's famous speech to Westerners at Moscow's Polish embassy in 1956, in which he famously exclaimed, history is on our side. We will bury you. Mm. Khrushchev is, holds a very specific place in our hearts, image wise, for sure. Sure. So now let's get into the history. Ah, okay. First of all, Russia, being Russia, Banned this film two days before its scheduled release. Of course they did. A member of the Culture Ministry's advisory board was quoted as saying, the film desecrates our historical symbols, the Soviet hymn, orders and medals, and Marshal Zhukov is portrayed as an idiot. Now, I wouldn't agree to that. Zhukov isn't, doesn't look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. He's the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. But as well, the film would have been released just before the 75th anniversary of the end of the Battle of Stalingrad. So uh, releasing this movie would have been, quote, an affront to Russia's World War II veterans, which I don't disagree with the timing. (laughs) I could understand them saying, you know, while we don't hate this movie, maybe we don't put it out right now. Mm -hmm. That seems okay, because Stalingrad was rough, because the Russian strategy during World War II was literally throw more men at it. Yeah, 20 million Russian soldiers died. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's how they did war. I mean, that's still how they kind of do war. That's how Russia does war. That's just how they operate. 
The former Soviet republics Kyrgyzstan, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan also banned the movie. And Khrushchev's son, Sergei, told Russian news agency TASS that it was a distorted and humiliated representation of the past, a mm -hmm. lampoon to the whole country and government of that time. Stalin's great-grandson, Yakov Zhugashvili, had some very choice remarks. He didn't see the final film, but for him, it was enough to know that a movie called The Death of Stalin existed for him to be pissed off. Mm. To people criticizing Iannucci for the film in Russia, he said, Criticism is pointless. What is the point of criticizing those inhumans? How can it be human when the death of a person is source for laugh? The reason why this movie exists is not the deeds of the writers, those inhumans, but of us. We refuse the fairness that was represented by Stalin, who tried to force people to live by fairness and now live by eating and relaxing. He also said he doubted such a film would be made about Il Sung Kim, which, oh man, would they ever love to make a movie about that if they weren't afraid of getting nuked. Oh, sure. If we didn't have, like, super dark tensions with North Korea, oh, they would make a movie about him in his hot second. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All of that banning and anger leads you to ask the question, is the film accurate? No, the real story is way worse and way weirder. That's shocking. <laughs> Sh shocking? I mean, I don't know if it's shocking. It's just like, what? How? How? The political maneuvering involved had a lot more to do with actual outside political events than anything to do with Stalin himself. Mm -hmm. It had to do with specific internal power struggles and, you know, things going on between the, the annexation of East Berlin and different uprisings in places and also very differing philosophies of what they thought the Russian state should be. Khrushchev was a reformer. So the, the way I've, I've sort of heard it in broad strokes from people who are communists and, you know, study this stuff, Lenin was a true... I mean, Lenin was a Bolshevik. Lenin was a true communist, led the revolution through, and then they hit really rough times because part of the problem was Russia was an agrarian economy. The workers knew how to farm. Okay. They had no money. Sure. <laughs> and they had no industry in order to support anything. So Lenin's dealing with tons of civil war, continued flanking from the right wing, and then he's trying to figure stuff out. Lenin dies, and Lenin says, I want Trotsky to lead. Do not let. Yosef take power. Yosef, hmm. in a very clear precursor of what's to come, gets Trotsky killed in Mexico with a pickaxe in his head, and then totally seizes power. And Stalin's whole point and his political point, and why there are still supporters of Stalin to this day, mm -hmm. is that Stalin dragged Russia into the 20th century. Hmm. Okay. That was the actual accomplishment of the Stalin regime, was to say, we are going to industrialize. Mm-hmm. Problem with that is that he did it by brutally killing people and torturing them. Estimates by historian Roy Medvedev estimate that the regime murdered around 40 million people mm -hmm. during his time in power. So we talk about some of the worst atrocities in human history. The Stalin regime is like five or six times what we have accounts for. Mm, okay. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that the man was a paranoid asshole. Early on, we see the drinking scene where they're all there, like, telling horrible jokes and continue to drink. This was one of Stalin's games. Mm -hmm. He routinely forced the ministers to get blackout drunk and pit them against each other mm. while he was suspicious of all of them. 
it's dark because we only get like a narrow scope of how bad the killing and the disappearing and the torture was for these people. Mm. But also the dynamic was so much weirder because Stalin is portrayed more of just this working class tyrant, but he's just sort of a background figure. The dude was terrifying (laughs) and everyone was terrified of him. And we do get that. We get those glimpses, right? He, he's screaming in his room and no one will go in because they're too afraid of, of waking him up because they think they're going to get murdered if they interrupt his instructions. Yep. But it, I don't know that the movie does the greatest job of getting that point across. Mm-hmm. And so historians, th- there's been two big complaints. One is that it actually tones down the horror of the Stalin regime. Mm-hmm. And that because of the generational trauma this caused, they feel like the movie's almost an injustice to all of the people who are victimized by Stalin. Now, it's a satire. <laughs> like, I, I can't, I think he's a, trying to approach it in a specific way. The comic was trying to approach things in a specific way to get you a certain understanding of power and how it works, right? So I, while I think it could be seen in a really weird light, I think that's just more a... We're trying to move this story along. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into all of the brutality that the regime did. Mm -hmm. Another big complaint that I actually find some interest in is from a historian named Samuel Goff of Cambridge. And he said that by making Beria, quote, an avatar of the obscenities of the Stalinist state, the film missed the opportunity to say, quote, anything about the actual mechanisms of power. Mm -hmm. He claims that Iannucci's slice of life satire doesn't approach the all-encompassing institutionalism of Stalinism, and that it's, quote, fundamentally ill-equipped to locate the comedy inherent to Stalinism, missing marks it doesn't know it should be aiming for. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is the more salient point. Okay. The, the comedy of this is how the actual structure of the state under this one man fundamentally destroyed everything. And there's a lot of like post-Soviet cinema that does this really well. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of different people who came out of the Soviet republics that do that. But I, I guess where I, I come from it is just like, yes, it's very funny, but it's also very dry. And it's missing what made things so wacky about this period in history. Mm-hmm. It was that a man under the auspices of actually trying to unite people became worse than any of the god kings that we had back in the renaissance mm-hmm. or the enlightenment like he was quite possibly the worst dictator in all of history who also accomplished some really big goals mm-hmm. like he's he's the number one tyrant of all time and they'd miss the point of that a lot yeah i don't know i don't know what you think about that i don't think that's what the movie is about mm. i think it's I mean, Stalin was a tyrant. Okay, cool. But it's in with his death. It's like, okay, these people don't like they none of no one knew how to lead or govern at all in any way. And that's what the movie's about is like, look at the people who held up this tyrant because they didn't know what else to do. They're all inept. That's what the that's what I feel it really is about. Yeah. Like the people who hold up such horrible people are maybe not as much malintentioned but they don't know what else to do other than oh this is my grab for power 
I, it's, it becomes my proximity to power, but all these people are just idiots. And a handful of them are also, again, terrified. Oh, they're terrified, but that's part of what keeps them in line. Yeah. Be- because nobody, nobody, nobody knows what else to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. If he really was just getting at, how did a normal person deal with this bullshit? Mm-hmm. How does any nor how does any person who's got weird different motivations deal with this ridiculousness? I think the movie does a great job of that. Sure, because if it if it was about Stalin being such a tyrant, he wouldn't be dead. <laughs> that's true. It's like, very true. That's not the point. The point is once you take away this evil person, what remains? What remains of his his administration? Well, look at what remains. A bunch of idiots who don't know what to do. So they're going to do either the same thing or they're going to do nothing. And they're just going to run around crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what remains of this man's administration. Pretty much. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely telling. As soon as he died, we dealt with, again, multiple power graphs. Khrushchev only kept power for a certain amount of time. Then Brezhnev takes over. And by the time Brezhnev took over, people are like, he was in his like 70s. He was mm-hmm. in really poor health. He gets kind of usurped later after doing all sorts of ridiculous weirdness to tear down Khrushchev's reforms. And Andropov comes in, who's like the total secret police dude. He's not mm-hmm. in this movie. But then this guy just makes things even worse. And finally, Gorbachev comes in at the end is like, all right, let me clean the rest of this up a little bit. And then we're done. <laughs> mm. Like, Gorbachev wanted to keep the Soviet Union together, but he also saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. At a certain point, he's like, well, there's no coming back from this, guys. And that that's a whole different story of history. You get into the Afghan war and a bunch of shit, but it really comes back around to, like, you only had two men with the vision for this entire thing. One was Lenin, mm-hmm. whose vision was much more of the true communist vision of the people collectively working together to create their own state. Mm-hmm. And you had Stalin, who was, I will pull these people into working for their own state. And everybody after him was like, we just got to keep the lights on, okay? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's literally all they could do because he just ruined all of it. The timelines also are completely rearranged and shifted here. That's mm-hmm. one big thing about all of this. So Molotov wasn't the foreign minister at the time of his death. He had actually been shut out in 1949. But then after Stalin's death, that's when he got brought back in. Hmm. Marshal Zhukov was just a local field commander who'd actually been exiled to the Russian provinces because of Stalin's intense paranoid jealousy of how like charismatic he was. So then he became the deputy minister of defense in the post-Stalin government, became Soviet commander in March 1953 when Khrushchev finally took over. Khrushchev led the meeting to reorganize the government, not Malenkov, and Beria wasn't arrested until three months after Stalin's death. It didn't happen all at the same time with this, and it had way more to do with the East German uprising in 1953 rather than anything to do with Stalin and political maneuvering. Beria was also not the head of the NKVD. He actually gave that up in 1946. That agency... It's a little weird, but it became the MVD, which was the Ministry for Internal Affairs. And then the secret policing part of the NKVD was spun off to the KGB. Hmm. Okay. So the NKVD was like their all-encompassing police force. And then they split off the CIA version and just the regular police. 
Svetlana actually remained in the Soviet Union. She didn't go to Vienna like we show in the movie. Mm-hmm. She worked as an academic and a translator. And then she defected to America in 1967 and became a naturalized citizen in 1978. Okay. So his daughter became an American. That's Stalin. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Timoshuk was described as being a willing accomplice in the doctor's plot. That's the woman that they say horrible things about. The doctor's plot was a campaign in 1952 and 1953 that accused doctors with Jewish ancestry of conspiring to assassinate Soviet leaders. Yes, y'all, the Soviet Union was just as, if not at times more, anti-Semitic than their German counterparts. Mm. It was not good. Russia's really always been pretty bad about the anti-Semitism. Yeah. So Timoshuk actually had no involvement in these events. She was an unwilling pawn in the entire plot, and she was embittered by being labeled as an informer and anti-Semite. She kept that all the way until her death in 1983. She got, like, the fall put on her, and she was not responsible for it at all. Hmm. The movie alludes to the 1950 plane crash in Sverdlovsk that killed 19 people, including 11 from the Soviet Air Force hockey team, the team doctor, and a masseur. Vasily Stalin was their patron, and he was so scared of his father's anger that he tried to hide the seriousness of the crash and rushed to recruit replacements so his father didn't know what happened. (laughs) However, all of this happened three years before Stalin's death, so he's taking this one funny bit and throwing it into the timeline. Mm -hmm. The opening in the concert hall is based on an incident a few years before Stalin's death. They actually had to use three conductors, not two, uh, because the second one was drunk. And Iannucci actually reined that story in because he thought the audience wouldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Armando Iannucci had to rein in Soviet history because he felt like history was putting a hat on a hat. Again, the absurdity is not always there, which I I, I think for me, I don't necessarily need a whole lot more, but I would have liked a little more absurdity and a little less dry satire. Mm Mm-hmm. That's probably the one thing that would have made this really great for me. Because it's like, it was that weird, guys. (laughs) Eudina's involvement also may date back to another story. In musicologist Solomon Volkov's book Testimony, which purported to be the memoirs of Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, Eudina was awakened in the middle of the night in 1943 or 44 to record her playing. The recording brought Stalin to tears and he paid her 20,000 rubles in appreciation. She apparently did send a note to Stalin. That was critical. However, it was a lot less harsh than what's in the film. Mm. He reportedly thanked him for the money, adding that she would donate it to the restoration of a church and be praying for Stalin's sins to be forgiven. Much cheekier. Yeah. However, still could have gotten her in big shit with Stalin. Apparently, she wasn't punished for this, and she was fired at one point, but never imprisoned, and her family was never killed. So they didn't mess with her. Okay. So interesting that this that character was not nearly in as dire circumstances as we see. Vasily's alcoholism was just as bad as we see in the movie, maybe worse. He died at the age of 40. Oh, okay. That's rough. Yeah. When Khrushchev comforts Svetlana, she buries her hands and says, I might as well just shoot myself like my mother. In 1932, her mother, Nadezh, Nadezhda Aliyuleva, publicly argued with her husband over the effects of the government's collectivization on peasants during a dinner party. Later that evening, she went up to her bedroom and committed suicide, Hmm. probably fearing what her husband would have done to her. Molotov's wife Polina's arrest and release is actually consistent with history. So this whole subplot, which feels so bizarre, 
is very, very true. Polina was arrested in 1949 on bogus charges and sentenced to five years hard labor, only being freed after Stalin's death. Stalin forced Molotov to divorce her at that time, and Beria used her as a way to try to get Molotov's loyalty to him. The Mm. two were remarried, and then they lived together until her death in 1970. While their relationship did appear to be sincere, Molotov never blamed Stalin or criticized him for the purges that led to his wife's arrest. Okay. So he is a tragic full believer. <laughs> it's it's heartbreaking, but it's like that's what people thought. And he was a true believer in the cause. Mm. Jason Isaacs in this movie wears less medals than the real life Zhukov. Oh, which really? there's a lot of fucking medals. Yeah. Iannucci thought the actual amount of medals would have been too unbelievable had they put it on him. Really? Okay. I mean, there. When Kaganovich arrives at Stalin's dacha and curses under his breath instead of feigning grief, <laughs> which is so fucking funny. Uh, this was a reference to Lenin's death early in the Soviet Empire. Kaganovich had been a Bolshevik well before the revolution, and so he was an immediate target of the purges and power grabs after Lenin's death. Mm. Anybody remotely related to Lenin was immediately suspect, possibly going to be killed. Which is why Molotov was under the gun for so long. Mm. At one point, Beria locks a young woman in a cell and gives her flowers upon release. This is because Beria was a notorious sexual predator, often driven around Moscow to find victims. When Beria finished, victims were typically offered a bouquet of flowers to give the appearance that the encounters had been consensual. Refusal could mean arrest, torture, and disappearance. And in fact, in 1993, workers uncovered several sets of bones, including two children's skulls near his home. Mm. At the time, they were converting it to the Tunisian embassy, and it was believed they were remains of his victims since they were covered in lime or chlorine. So Beria was a real-life total monster. Maybe worse than what we see in this movie. Russian history! Love it. Love it. The movie's not trying to tell you a fully accurate account, obviously. Mm -hmm. I just wished he hadn't pulled punches because he thought, well, it's just too unbelievable. I'm like, nah, dude, that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. I would much rather you acknowledge the absurdity of it and then just have your characters comment on, look at how many fucking medals he has on his chest. You know, just make a joke about it and and let us see how ridiculous it was. Because I think we're missing that. I think mm-hmm. it's what makes the movie feel dry at times. Maybe. But, I mean, again, you have to read, like, five books to get the full breadth and scope of how weird and also dark and terrible this whole period was. All right, let's talk about our director. Mm-hmm. It's Armando Iannucci. Before this, he directed the Armando Iannucci shows. I'm Alan Partridge, The Thick of It, In the Loop, and Veep. After this, The Personal History of David Copperfield and Avenue 5. What do we think of Armando's directing in this movie? Great. It serves his script very well. Yeah. He's kind of one of the few people who can direct his own scripts at this point. Yes. They require such a specific flavor of satire. I think when you're doing satire, it helps. If you if you were the writer to also be the director, I, I think it helps. You have to be really good at satire or you have to be a really good director. I think he just happens to be both. So he can write something that he understands the flavor for when it comes to having to direct it. Yeah, and he he has such a specific style of letting faces linger. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because he doesn't linger on lines like it's all rapid fire. Yeah. But then 
instead of, you know, something Aaron Sorkin where it's just snappy dialogue, snappy dialogue, snappy dialogue, mm-hmm. all of a sudden somebody will say something really fucking weird yep. and everything will stop and he just stares at people's faces. Mm-hmm. That's That's the unique trick he has of like moving right along and then something really ridiculous happens and he just stays on it for an uncomfortable amount of time. Mm. And that's that's the the little trick he's got up his sleeve. It's really solid. I don't I don't know that there's anything remarkable other than if you've seen an Armando movie, then you know how this feels. Or if you've watched Veep or one of those shows, like you're like, okay, yeah, no, this is this is one of his movies. It's just it's his own style and it serves it really well because the writing's the real star here. Mm-hmm. Armando insisted that the characters not speak with Russian accents for two different reasons. He didn't want to take audiences out of the movie. And he didn't want the actors to worry about accents while they were improvising. Because, yes, they are doing a lot of improvising. Mm-hmm. Per Iannucci, Russian journalists actually praised the decision when previewing the film. Mm-hmm. Which, while well, they did ban it, and they were like, well, at least they didn't try to butcher our accents. Yeah. It's a strong choice, and it makes, so, it, makes it so much better. Well, he's making this for an American audience. And the, the bar is... If to understanding what's happening is going to be relatively high and putting on those accents and whatnot is just a whole other thing. Yeah. It just becomes a whole other thing. That's just not necessary to get his point across, which is look at all these idiots. The interesting part though, is that Russia is actually so large and has mm-hmm. so many different countries that it's very possible that when these guys talk to each other, the accents were wildly different like that. Yeah. So it's it's a little it's a little historical note that's pretty funny. For example, Stalin has a working class English accent in this movie. He was actually from the former Soviet state of Georgia and spoke Russian with a heavy Georgian accent. And Georgia was commonly associated with farming. So his accent might have been considered rustic by the other people around him. So when you're dealing with all these different ethnicities and cultures within the same Soviet Union, mm-hmm. it almost makes historical sense to be like, this guy's got a posh British accent. This guy's Steve Buscemi. Kirilenko's the only person who's actually, you know, of a former Russian Republic. So she's got a little bit of an accent, but not much. Like everybody's got their own twist on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's kind of how it would be with all these people talking to each other. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about our cast our cast there are so many people in this movie Uh uh-huh so fucking many of them Mm -hmm. i'm gonna talk about our main four because it's really centered around these four figures the whole time and we start with steve fucking buscemi as nikita khrushchev i'm not giving his credits nope steve buscemi yep he's also been on the show before but that's a different story what do we think of Steve Buscemi in this movie? He's so fun. Like, just oh the exasperation gosh. is so fun. <laughs> All I had to do was give the man a bald wig and, like, mm-hmm. a little bit of a paunch and then just let him fucking rip. <laughs> yep. Because his whole the whole point of his character is just, like, the fuck is wrong with all of you? Mm-hmm. We have a country to run. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, dealing with his, like, really annoying rival. Yeah. But there's only one person in that entire room that he has any respect for. Yeah. And everybody else is just like, oh, my God, can we get back to the fact that we have a fucking country to run? Mm -hmm. It's one of the most perfectly cast roles 
in the whole movie and everybody's great but it's just like he didn't really have to act he does and he does a great job but just by putting steve buscemi in that role you've nailed it already mm-hmm. you know the other thing i've no- i've learned is like khrushchev was apparently a ridiculous hothead like okay. massively angry super like fighty punchy and like buscemi's attitude here Again, while he's dumpier, it's still like, I'm going to fight everybody in this room. Get your shit together. <laughs> so it, it fits really well for Khrushchev in particular. All right. Then we have Simon Russell Beale playing Lavrenti Beria. Now, mm-hmm. he is primarily known for theater, but he has been in a handful of stuff. Before this, he was in Orlando, Hamlet, the 1996 version, An Ideal Husband, The Deep Blue Sea, My Week with Marilyn, Into the Woods, Penny Dreadful, and My Cousin Rachel. After this, he was in The Outfit and Thor, Love and Thunder. What do we think of Simon Russell Beale in this movie? He's good. Devilish. Mm-hmm. Devilish little British man. I mean, just as bad as, as his historical counterpart was. Mm-hmm. A little more schemy. Yeah. But it's kind of fun to watch a mustache twirler in a real dry comedy. Yes, because they can't, they can't do that. Like, he's totally snidely whiplash. Mm-hmm. But then he's not exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and it re- all it really comes down to is just like he's doing a pitch perfect job of doing all these different things, sometimes good, sometimes not, but always for the service of his own power grab. Mm-hmm. And he does not care who he hurts in the process, which is what gets him killed. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's delightfully fun. Also, very fun opposite Steve Buscemi. That's what's so funny is like, which one of them's going to crack? Who's going to crack? Who's going to crack? It's so fun. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, if you know the story, you know who's eventually going to lose it. I think, yeah. it. I think the other fun part is like, even knowing who winds up on top here, the fun part is watching how they go about that with this character. Because mm-hmm. like, through almost the whole movie, Beria has the upper hand. True. So you're just like, when is it finally going to turn? <laughs> you were just waiting the whole time. Yeah. Then we have Jeffrey Tambor as Georgi Malenkov. Now, this man has problems. Mm-hmm. Not the greatest dude in the world, but he's also one of the funniest character actors who's ever lived. And he's great in this fucking movie. He's very good, but he is in some serious timeout. Oh, forever. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can't stress that enough. In this movie, though, God just it's just it's just like the larry sanders bit Mm -hmm. of putting him on that show a man with an outsized ego and absolutely no no concept of what to do to actually like get things done yep none just the most hapless person even more sad sack than some of the sad sacks he's played and he's played a lot of sad sacks Mm -hmm. the way that he in this movie is literally the man running the soviet union Yeah. And is so reliant on literally anyone else to help. (laughs) Just, uh, he's, he's, again, this is another perfectly cast role for this. Mm -hmm. Finally, we have Michael Palin playing Vyacheslav Molotov. Before this, he was in Monty Python's Flying Circus. And now for something completely different, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Jabberwocky, The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash. Life of Brian, Ripping Yarns, Time Bandits, The Missionary, The Meaning of Life, Brazil, A Fish Called Wanda, Fierce Creatures, and Arthur Christmas. And after this, he was on a new TV adaptation of Vanity Fair. And he does lots and lots of travel shows and books. What do we think of Michael Palin in this movie? 
He's fabulous. So good. He's just like the cherry on the Sunday. He's so subtle. Yes, that's why. Because it would be so easy for him to mug. It would be so easy to mug. But mm-hmm. he doesn't. He doesn't. That that hand raising scene at the table is one of the fucking funniest deliveries. Yeah. And I know a lot of it has to do with everybody else's faces in there. Mm-hmm. But the just the precise timing of the pauses and the tension building. And not only that, but then him walking in with the like, is it a pig that he walks in with that he has oinking into the microphone in the car? Yes. <laughs> just the God Almighty mm-hmm. walked off. How dare you get in the car? <laughs> so let's kill him. <laughs> he's just so fucking funny. Mm-hmm. And and like he's also the he's the one guy in the whole story that you actually kind of feel for because of what went on with his wife. Mm-hmm. Like I, I that's the other subtle part is he has one of the bigger acting jobs because he has to have all that conflict. Yeah. Cuz he loves it. He, I mean, the man did love his wife. Absolutely. And never mm-hmm. stopped loving her. He also just was so devoted to the Soviet cause that he never could reconcile that part of it. Hmm. So he absolutely loved his wife, stayed devoted to her, stayed with her until her death. But also, if the state told her, go shoot her in the head, he'd probably have done it. Yeah, that That's tracks. the kind of man he was. Yeah, that tracks. But I think they do a great job of making that sympathetic mm-hmm. because you're like, this is the one guy who actually believed in any of this. Everybody else is trying to grab power mm-hmm. and he doesn't mind. He just believes in the Soviet cause. He wants to do what Stalin would do. Yeah, he's that true believer who wants to like honor the person who he essentially worships. Every other line, he's just like, we have to get back to what Stalin was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which nobody wanted to go back to what Stalin was doing. All right, let's talk about our Arpons. Mm-hmm. We have Andrea Riseborough playing Svetlana Stalin. She's been in a ton of stuff. Birdman, Venus, Waco, Amsterdam. She's very fucking funny in this. Rupert Friend playing Vasily Stalin. Oh my God, he's so fucking funny in this movie. Mm-hmm. So drunk. So desperately drunk. We have Olga Kurlenko playing Marina Udina. We talked about her before in Quantum of Silence. That wasn't great casting, but this one is good. She's also our only cast member from the Soviet Union being born in Soviet-controlled Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We have Patty Considine playing Andreev, the engineer at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. He's in House of the Dragon right now. He's also in 24-Hour Party People. We have Jason Isaacs playing Field Marshal Zhukov. He's not in the movie enough to be this, but um, when asked why he used a Yorkshire accent to play Zhukov, he responded, in a perfect Yorkshire accent, the bluntest people I know are Yorkshiremen. <laughs> you talk about cherries on top. Zhukov is the cherry on top for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, oh, you bloody idiots, come in here. We're going to take him down now. Mm-hmm. The only man who has a plan to get rid of any of this shit. Uh, we have Justin Edwards playing Spartak Sokolov, conductor number one. He was a longtime regular on The Thick of It with the energy. Mm-hmm. Adrian McLaughlin playing Joseph Stalin. He's kind of an unknown, mostly a British TV actor, but he's got a prominent role. We at least got to mention him. Mm-hmm. And he's very fucking funny. Yes. In that just, oi, give me, give me the record. <laughs> that voice for Stalin. Mm-hmm. 
Roger Ashton Griffiths playing musician number one. He played Mace Tyrell in Game of Thrones and is a very common British character actor. Nicholas Woodson playing Boris Bresnovich, conductor number two. He was the doctor who evaluates Bond for his return to service in Skyfall. Hmm. Daniel Tweet playing NKVD officer Slimanov played Lothar Frey in Game of Thrones. Emilio Iannucci playing the young doctor with the, with the other doctors. He is the son of Armando. Richard Brake playing Tarasov, the soldier assigned to be with Vasily the whole time. He's a gaunt-faced villain actor who we just saw as the old guy in Barbarian. Oh, okay. And as one of the audience members at the symphony, Armando Iannucci. Mm-hmm. And that is it for our movie. There's not a whole lot of trivia outside of like these main points that they make. So we're going straight into ratings. Rain, we're already at rating. We're already at rating. Like I said, there's not there's not a whole lot about this one. It's st- it's still a relatively recent movie, mm-hmm. and the history is the biggest thing. Uh. So for every film, we have a specific rating system. For this movie, oh, boy howdy, we've got to go with the records, right? The little the the immediate flexi records for Stalin. I yes, I think that works. I think that works. I brought this movie to the table. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? A lot of these are my movies. I'm gonna have you go first on this one. I'm going to go with the four. It's really well done. The script's great. Cast is great. I think I think the only thing holding me back from a five is that I don't think I'd watch it again. And I don't think I learned anything about these people. And also it reminds me too much of some people who were hanging out in, you know, some very special rooms not too long ago. So... <laughs> Like, that just brings me some sadness. And like, no, we as a species have not progressed enough at all. We just haven't. Yeah, I think it's a four for me as well. Because okay. it's so solidly done. Yeah. For me, it's that knowing some of the history, like I said, just the, mm-hmm. he's so dry. And mm-hmm. that's one of his special skills. But I feel like this story could use some of the wackiness that was in that time. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that wackiness informs just how wild and bewildering the power struggle was when the vacuum comes you know sure like you need to have a sense of that scope in order to then understand why everyone would be so frantic otherwise it just it just feels a little flat to me Mm -hmm. and that's and, and like i said you can't capture anywhere near the scope of all of this within anything that isn't somewhat fictionalized but you can at least get at you don't need to rein yourself in like Armando did here mm-hmm. and specifically saying, I feel like I want to do this because I want people to believe it. And I'm like, nah, dude, that's kind of the idea, though. <laughs> hmm. I, I It should be unbelievable to me. So then when I look it up late, I'm like, that's ridiculous. That couldn't have happened. And then I read and it was like five times weirder. Yeah. Like that to me makes a stronger statement. Hmm. But it's still really good. And the performances are so fucking funny. All right. Well, now. We have dealt with a pivotal point in the Soviet Union. We are going to go from 1953 into the rest of the 1950s, and we are going all the way to North Africa. Oh, okay. Because we are going to talk about France's biggest blunder in its entire imperial history. Okay. With a little movie from Italy, of all places, Okay. called La Battaglia di Algeri, or... The Battle of Algiers. Oh, okay. You're going to have to read some subtitles for this one, Diana. Oh, I 
don't hate that. I, yeah, but I do have to be prepared. I have to be prepared. Yeah, to read. absolutely. Okay. This was another one of those. This is an important movie. You should watch it. Okay. But I think what's most interesting about this movie is not just what story it tells, but how it decided to tell it. Oh, okay. And that is one of its lasting hallmarks. So I'm. This is the one I'm probably most nervous about because I don't know how you're gonna like it. But I hope okay. you do. Okay. I hope you do. All right. Well, I know nothing about the Battle of Algiers, so both the movie or the actual historical event. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it'll it'll be interesting. I'll learn something, hopefully. You will definitely learn things. Okay. I do like learning. <laughs> but before we go. We have some new movies to talk about. New movies. First, we saw Halloween Ends. The saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode comes to a spine-chilling climax in the final installment of this trilogy. The fact that I genuinely cannot remember like what happens in this movie just is not great for it. Ah, uh, it was still better than Halloween whatever. Kills Halloween. Yes, kills. It, it's better, and and that's really because. They couldn't end it. The last one, they couldn't, and they couldn't find their ending, knowing that there was going to be another installment. And I think that's one of the things that I hate about sequels is that when it's written as just a middle piece for the next film instead of being a standalone. So this one definitely, I agree, it was better, but I can't say it was memorable. It's not. I mean, it's not. It's not great. They do. They do have a very good twist in this one that is compelling. Yes, and not like you know, a gotcha at the end twist at all. Mm -mm. It's it's a unique take on the Halloween story. And there have been a lot of people who have been like, you know, go back to Halloween 3, which is like totally unrelated. And also this other weird killer story. Mm -hmm. This starts to step in that to that territory. I kind of almost hope they do that where they're like, let's loop in the legacy of Michael Myers without needing Michael Myers. Sure. That would be more fun for the franchise, I feel like. I, that's fair. I mean, if you've seen the others, you have to see this because you have to see how Halloween ends. Next, we saw Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. The people of Wakanda fight to protect their home from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of King T'Challa. So this film had to do like 12 things at once. Yes. It had such a huge bar to pass. And I... I'm very vocal that I feel like they should have delayed, like they, the movie should have been delayed before the pandemic and whatnot. Like they should have just delayed it and they should have recast. That's that was that was where I felt. I totally understand why they didn't, but like that's fine. That's the decision they made. Fine. This film is fabulous. It does every single thing it needs to to honor Chadwick Boseman, to honor T'Challa, but also move. Wakanda and these characters forward. It is a little long. There's probably one storyline that I would cut, even though it makes sense in the film. I would cut just for time because it's almost three hours long, but it didn't feel three hours. Like I actually made it through this one without taking a bathroom break, which is shocking. <laughs> um, and it I I I really enjoyed it. This is one of the best written Marvel movies in the whole series. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stand alone because it can't, but it's very good. I think it does stand alone. It, I, I don't feel like you have to watch Black Panther. I feel yes, like somebody do. could tell you, 
hey, so this character who was a big fucking deal, the actor died, like, and and this happened. And I no. feel like you could still get the same point across here. No. You need to watch Black Panther, but you do not have to watch any other Marvel films to enjoy this. No, it's it's, it's part of its own series. Yes, I think I think that's what is really good about this. Having the information of all the other ones is great. It, it, it always helps serve character motivations and whatnot. But it's not necessary for this film. You do need Black Panther. More importantly to me, though, it deals with grief, mm-hmm. colonialism. Oh, yes, which I love. I love how they do this. It's so good. And the unique differences between cultures on how to approach this looming world. Mm-hmm. And it does that in a superhero movie. That's also still fucking action packed, still highly entertaining, and still has a whole bunch of the Marvel stuff that Marvel demands that they put in it. Yep. Coogler's a cut above a lot of the other people making movies in this universe right now. I'm just going to say it. And I like a lot of the other movies. I really do. There's been a lot of them that I've enjoyed. This was the first one in a long time where I've been like, this stands above the rest. For I, me. I- I, I would definitely put this in one of the top tens of the Marvel films. Like, I understand that there's some that, that can be a little more entertaining. And yes, it is overlong. <laughs> the studio demanded that they do a whole lot. And then on top of that. Not, not just the studio. This was the universe that they're playing in. And then also the universe as it exists, because Chadwick passed, required that this film do a lot of things. Well, that, that's what I was saying, is that not just Marvel needed them to progress all of these story points. But then on top of it, Coogler also wanted to layer in a whole bunch of stuff for everybody who cared about this character so much. And he does it very well. It's so, so good. <laughs> it's very good. It's, it's worth the time. Everybody's talked about all these different movies deserving Oscar consideration. This is actually my pick for, no, this one's worthy of it because of how well done they wrote it. That's, that's my feeling on it. Mm. This is the one movie that really stands up there for me. I, I would give it. I would, this one deserves some consideration for at least performances for sure. Oh, yeah. And again, like, just like when I was sitting in the first one going, this film better get nominated for costumes. This one, this one better get nominated for costumes because it's that fucking gorgeous. Um, There is a sweater that is doing the Lord's work in this film. If you go see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. All right. (laughs) Next, we saw The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Two lifelong friends find themselves in an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both of them. I love this movie so much. It's if so I good. hadn't already seen everything everywhere all at once, this would be my pick for movie of the year. Maybe, maybe. But the story is so good. It's so well told. It's, I mean, it's a Martin McDonough film, so it's fabulous. And then it's performed expertly. I mean, Colin. Uh, Farrell is my go-to for Academy for Best Actor. He's it for me. He's incredible. Uh, he's that fabulous. And Brendan Gleeson is also phenomenal, but it, it's all about Colin in this film. And he's so good. There, There's definitely um, trigger warnings for child abuse within this film. It's still a very good film. Oh. It's just so good. You know, some of the... Some of it is just having been a fan of McDonough. We're both we're both theater people. We both heard of Martin McDonough, and he kind of came to fame around the time we were in theater. Yeah, and you know we yeah we've seen his other plays. This is part of his little trilogy of things. 
um specifically in the irish isles yeah and i i also love that you know our our four main actors are all from ireland so like they just get that it's just like they're all using their actual accents which is also super fun it's just it's so good it's so good my my thing is like there there's a play that i read several different times because it's just one of those easy one act plays to study and it's called riders to the sea and when you learn about all the symbolism behind it you realize it's this huge allegory for ireland mm-hmm. like as a country and the struggles it's been through this movie is that for me mm. like you can see within this story that's just so expertly told in this little crafted story there's also this whole bigger thing going on mm-hmm. with the story of ireland and its history as well and it's just so expertly done in just this really intimate way. And that's just good Irish storytelling. Mm. And it's Martin McDonough. So it's, it is my, my number two, but like by a hair. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Next we saw The Menu. A young couple travels to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. This is satire done so perfectly well done just really really well executed movie like it is not the most groundbreaking idea in the world it's not this really great statement of anything because it's it can be really on the nose but it's on the nose in the way that really good satire is yeah um also just like super big trigger warnings like seriously there are several on-screen suicides within this film yes like didn't know that going in. You should know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's gruesome. It's it's a gruesome it's a gruesome film. The story they're telling is just very interesting, and it's it is definitely satire, but it's done so so well. Yeah, this is one of those movies where I was like, look, do I think it's going to be like one of the most well regarded movies of the year? No. Do I think it's really fucking good fun? Yes. <laughs> it's wicked, and it's it moves well. It's very fun. It's cheeky and also really pointed. Like, it will yes. hit you. <laughs> oh, and then Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes is just the fucking shit. Let's remember that, too. Ray Fiennes is fabulous. He's clearly having fun in this. Next, we saw Ticket to Paradise. A divorced couple teams up and travels to Bali to stop their daughter from making the same mistake that they think they made 25 years ago. This is just good romantic comedy fun. It's just a George Clooney and Julia Roberts romance. How can you not enjoy it? Yeah, it's just it's them being mean to each other, which is adorable because they like each other as people so much. So it's just it's just fun. It's good. I probably didn't need to see this in a movie theater. I won't lie. But I still enjoyed it. Like, I'm not mad. (laughs) I just was was like, uh, this could have just been a Netflix movie and we'd be fine. Uh, yeah. And speaking of Netflix movies, <laughs> next we saw Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. This is the one that I said, ah, we can wait till it comes out on Netflix. And Dan was like, no, we have to go see it in the theater. And I'm glad we did because it was a lot of fun. My thing was like, we loved that first one so much. We're going to we kick ourselves if we don't see this on a big screen. No, I don't think so. I'm glad we did because it was fun, but I probably would have been fine at home. It's a really good movie. It's a really great sequel. It's another great, not so much sequel as it is uh, another piece to the Knives Out mystery series. Um, They have a lot of fun, like poking fun at uh, additional installments in mystery 
series. They had a lot of fun with that. Daniel Craig is clearly having a lot of fun as Benoit Blanc. Love it. It's, it was super fun. Dave Bautista said as much of like, he's having so much more fun doing this than he ever did playing Bond, which like, duh. Like he loved being Bond, but this is just a different fun fancy man. And also his costumes in this are hilarious, like in the best way. I love it. I just love the way that they fuck with tropes. They um, did. They fucked with tropes a lot and they had, they're having fun with it. And Ryan Johnson just, he's clearly having fun writing these series. So I'm, yep. I, I can't wait till the next one. And finally, we saw the Fablemans. Growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, young Sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. This is where Steven Spielberg makes a movie about moms instead of dads. <laughs> and it's not very good in my... I like. It's a very well done film, but I don't think it's very good. And I think Michelle Williams is actually really awful in this. I think she's a phenomenal actress in this film. I think she's a cartoon character and not. And and that is in the way that it is being performed, not in the way that she is written. I think you're going too far on the movie itself. I think it's a perfectly fine movie. I'm not saying it's the greatest movie. It's not. But it's super enjoyable. I did enjoy it, but I don't think it's very good. I don't know about that. I mean, I can, it just... lo- I can have a lot of fun at a crap movie. Like that's just a fact. <sighs> Look, it's it's self indulgent by its nature. Yes, of course. But what I do appreciate here is that we talked about this a lot with West Side Story, in that the care for that story came through in the film, and again, it was expertly constructed as well. Mm-hmm. This one, while it's not as expertly constructed, and it's way too long. It's, it's a completely different beast. But the same level of care is in it. And I don't feel like he pushed the same sort of Spielberg make emotions happen button that he does with a lot of these family stories. He felt like he gave a lot more nuance to it. No, I don't think there's any nuance to this mm, film. I, I think there is. I do. I, I don't disagree that some of the performances aren't great, but I, I read it and felt... I was expecting way more of just a total self-indulgent fest. And instead, I think he tried to really like capture how he would have felt in that time. And I don't think that's any of this film. Mm. I think it's very self-indulgent. I think he's too close to the painting. He can't see what's happening. If this was someone else's story, it would have been hacked up to pieces because it's it's all over the place. Everything is telegraphed way too much in this film there's nothing subtle yeah the the kid who plays the main character who's supposed to be steven sammy he's great in the film he really is it is very funny so they get points for that but i think the story is kind of a joke Mm. like i think the way it's presented is so beyond predictable it's bad our first strong disagreement of the oscar season here like, I I mean, I'm sure it's going to get nominated for all the things because, again, it's self-indulgent Steven Spielberg film about him loving movies. But that's not what this movie is about, actually. It's about a really fucked up relationship with his mom. But that's not even presented properly either. So I don't like it. I don't Ooh. like this movie. I've decided I don't like it. I like it. I like it. I think it's I think it's really well done. I don't think it's nearly as good as some of the better contenders we've seen this year, but yeah, it it'll it's probably going to make its way into the ten best pictures of the year. Yes, 
but it doesn't deserve any any awards. Well, you know what? You know what? You're going to have to go see it for yourself because we clearly disagree. Whatever. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.